Hello and welcome to the Rationable Podcast, your weekly deep dive into how science and critical thinking make you immune to scams, fads and hoaxes. I am your host, Abhijit. Let's dig in. Part of my interview with Dr. Sumaya Sheikh, where we speak about her current research in understanding the neurophysiology of violent behavior, especially with extremists. We dive into the phenomena studied by Stanley Milgram and Philip Zimbardo in their controversial experiments that have revealed a lot about the human tendencies to do horrible things. Ironically, the experiments themselves were pretty horrible in their own way. This conversation is going to be pretty heavy, but we've tried to minimize any graphic descriptions. If you don't feel comfortable listening to this kind of material, feel free to skip this episode. It'll be fine. That said, I hope you do stick around and I hope you do enjoy the interview. I, for one, have learned a lot from it and I hope you do too. I, there are some burning questions that I've, been, that I've had for many years that I've been uh, trying to figure out the answer to and haven't really gotten around to it. There was, was one of the first articles I'd ever written on Rationable, and this was the first article I wrote, was about how women are mistreated in India and okay. why they are mistreated in India without even blinking an eye. And in trying to figure out what that might have been and why that might have been. And this was, I was just, I was pulling this, I have to admit, out of my, you know what, hat. <laughs> say, um, Great re- replacement. You <laughs> <laughs> um, so get brownie points on that for making <laughs> it family friendly. <laughs> this, this channel is all about being family friendly. Um, one of the things which, which I found along the way was this TED talk by Professor Philip Zambardo, mm-hmm. who uh, did the rather infamous Stanford prison experiment. Yeah, and basically, just just for listeners and viewers who haven't encountered this before, this experiment basically involved this professor taking two groups of students, volunteers, of course, varying backgrounds, usually very stable families, good family backgrounds, history of mental stability, no recorded mental illness, as far as I could I remember, and he put them into the basement of the Stanford University and divided them into, you know, jailers and prisoners. And he assigned the prisoners only numbers, no names. And he just let the experiment continue. Of course, I'm super simplifying it. There's a lot more to it. But over a few days, it came to be recorded that the prisoners were being extremely, like, mistreated, like, to the next level, almost unimaginably, by the jailers. Now, these these kids know that they're just role-playing. But at the same time, they are becoming very abusive towards the prisoners. And he had to stop the experiment much earlier than it was, than was planned. But he hypothesized that if you dehumanize a certain group of people by taking away their identity and by taking away their humanity, then it becomes much easier for another group to subjugate them to a lot of physical and mental abuse. And he, in a TED talk I watched, 
he likened that to Abu Ghraib and the atrocities that oh. happened during that period of time and the soldiers who were all deputized US citizens, how they treated the prisoners who were in that place. And that made me think that maybe it's because Indian women were dehumanized. Now, I don't want to go in full deep into that if Indian women were being dehumanized and not seen as equals to men, then maybe that just makes it a lot easier for Indian women to be subjugated to a lot of abuse and uh, basically not being given equal rights and being treated in the way that they have been for ages. And this is this came out of the whole Nirbhaya case, which had just happened right. recently, just before that. So my question after that huge backstory is, have you looked into the Stanford prison experiment? And do you think there's any legitimacy to it? Yes, there's a lot of criticism around the Stanford prison experiment. So uh, Stanford, so Philip Zimbardo, and there's another colleague of Zimbardo called Stanley Milgram. Now, these guys were, of course, in the U.S., uh, but they were like offshoot of what happened in World War II, um, the Holocaust. Uh, in the 70s, in the early 70s, they were trying to figure out a way in understanding how people, normal people, absolutely normal, because you can't think of the entire country, Germany, and how big, big Germany was back then, becoming psychopathic criminals where they're kind of subjecting the Jews to this amount of very gruesome kind of, it's not just pain, like, or like simple murder. It's, it's beyond that. You know, they were running experiments yeah. on them, gassing them. And um, so this is the, the, one of the worst brutal type of um, in history and, and killing so many at the same time and starving them to death and doing all these sorts of experiments. And yes, there was a lot of dehumanization. They did not think of that them as humans. They were, excuse my language, but cockroaches and, you know, all sorts of horrible things that you could imagine um, to describe humans. Vermin and rats, they mm -hmm. have the same language to describe the Roma community even today. They are just bags of rats, vermin, cockroaches. It's exactly the same. You know, then there's Islamophobia, obviously. Um, mm. You know, there's anti-Black sentiment. So so all of this is in the world is still that, you know, we're still seeing it continued. So it's not like violence has reduced. I mean, yes, it's reduced, but the, but the appetite of violence hasn't reduced. So mm. you can't describe the entire world or entire countries who who supported the genocide did the genocide as psychopaths and sociopaths and whatever you call them there's no pathology for every single person and this is mm -hmm. where milgram stanley milgram and philip zimbardo came into the picture they were in the 70s they did these experiments on healthy people and why this is important for me is that my research line is actually based on healthy people engaging in violence. And this violence is very similar, similar to the extremist violence because it is not a retaliation-like um, violence. It's not defensive. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it comes from your own appetite to be physically aggressive or violent to another person um, to the point that it's clearly painful. You wouldn't want to give that to yourself. 
And yet mm-hmm. you would do that and you enjoy the process of it. Um, there is a reward system associated with it. And the reward is that the reward is not anything else, not money. It's not like an instrument to gain something, power, money. Because a lot of the violence in society also happens because of, you know, power and money, like mm-hmm. sexual violence and, you know, theft and that kind of stuff. But this, is, the reward here is violence itself. You enjoy doing that. I, I spoke to a lot of uh, extremists and neo-Nazis and those kind of people were former Nazis. One of my closest, like, um, uh, researchers, now researcher, but former Nazi recruiter. He was the main recruiter of a neo-Nazi group in the 90s in Chicago. And now he's like an absolute brother to me. But he he basically now helps people to come out of extremism. And the young kids who now subscribe to an extremist ideology, he helps them come out of it. And he used to say that every Sunday, Saturday, the, uh, you know, that was the activity, um, you know, go to synagogues, throw, throw stones at them. And, and, and this is 90s Chicago, you know, just, just, you know, trash people's cars if they found out they were Jewish, go into their colonies and do all sorts of things to them. And they were just a bunch of kids. Um, well, kids, but like early 20s, late teens. So I think the oldest one was 25. And mm-hmm. then come back and enjoy the party that they managed to do this much damage. So, so a lot of these things have been happening and we see that everywhere. I mean, in India, of course, you know, people are sitting on the constant edge. Any little blink of an eye and you call people and someone can get lynched. It is that simple. People are just so much on the edge when it comes to just eruption of violence that, you know, it'll take nothing for 500 people to gather and lynch someone uh, because mm-hmm. some person who who they think they're agreeable with uh, will make a, convince them in, 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 in a matter of seconds or minutes, probably. Generally, it's about religion or anything that is sacred to you and like whatever the, your sacred value is. Cow, for example, beef is one of the biggest things, right? But there are other things too, but there's a lot of... But that's actually... The, the basis of that is there's already a level of, you know, anti-human sentiment towards a community or a specific caste. And the, the, I wouldn't say the hate, but there is also... So, for example, a lot of people on social media now talk about, oh, there's a lot of hate. You know, you, you're dishing out hate. But I think there's more than hate. Here it's more disgust. And when, when you, if you see the way the Holocaust was, it was more about disgust on these other people. They're, they're worming and cockroaches. It's not just hate. You're, you're dehumanizing them because you think they're disgusting. And the, the other party, when they become disgusting, oh, they are the lower caste class, etc. Um, it's easy to do what, what all of these people have done. How do you think this is, other than having a common belief system and having a common dehumanized view of another group, how do people who are like us who are otherwise reasonable, (laughs) rational, normal human beings. How do they justify making, taking that, going off that edge? Yeah, I I was coming to that. I've come coming to that because you don't have Mm -hmm. to have, I was coming back to the standard prison experiment and the Milgram experiment for one reason, Mm -hmm. because in my research as well, I'm not looking at, I mean, I do interview radicalized people and there is an intention of going in uh, getting doing some experiments on them, but at the moment I'm I'm using healthy people to you know engage in that kind of laboratory controlled physical aggression, 
Uh, and we, we do a lot of psychiatry before the person comes in. So three to four hours of psychiatry to make sure they have absolutely no uh, major psychiatric conditions. So we rule out autism, ADHD, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, uh, borderline personality disorder, psychopathy, um, you know, narcissism, everything you can possibly imagine in the psychiatric domain. And then we start them because we, we want to make sure that they're absolutely healthy. And then when they come in and then they start doing what they're doing, we realize this is this appetitive drive. And then we have all sorts of electrodes on their face to measure their facial emotions, their sweat, changes on the, on the muscle, their breathing and their heart rate and all of that. Um, and then we also get some genetics just to make sure that uh, is it because of some sort of uh, genetic variance in them that they are what they are? It might not come out in the psychiatry as a physical manifestation of the of the problem, but it might be in their genes. But they're all clean. They're, they're I mean, I won't say clean because nobody's clean, clean. <laughs> but you know, it, uh, I mean, they, they don't have any of those um, risk factors that would predispose them to this type of weapons. But they all do what they do. Is and this is beyond ideology. This is beyond you know. You're if you're going to be violent, you're going to be violent, and then you just pick whatever on the that comes your way. I mean, there's huge differences in the ideology between the Taliban and the ISIS, for example. But cult hopping is so normal. Like you could go from one place to another in a cult, think even if it's slightly different ideology, because all you're looking is that is that drive, that drugs that gets you high, and that drug is that aggression. In the in the Stanford prison experiment, it was very similar. I mean, they finished in six days, right? So there were these guards. And there were these students who were these prisoners. And within six days, people started to drop out. The guards started behaving like the guards and the prisoners started behaving like the prisoners. And if you, if you keep someone like that in that dynamics, even though, because there's a lot of confusion and criticism around these experiments because these guys knew that this is an act. But despite yeah. of that, despite of that, they did what they did. And I think that's the most fascinating part. Imagine for people who don't know that this is an act, people who are actually in a concentration camp, people who are in Auschwitz, right? Uyghur Muslims who are in concentration camps. And there are so many militarized zones in India and people, and there's, you know, curfews constantly. I mean, Kashmir is just one example, but imagine if you keep someone for in curfew for a long, long period of time. And if you give guards the authority, I'm not saying the guards are uh, the, the meanest or the most violent people, but they can behave. If someone can behave like a god and start giving physical and psychological abuse to other prisoners who are actually students and they know it's an act, imagine what a military person can do. And imagine what the, the prisoner can behave. And then I want to go to this other experiment I was talking about, about um, Stanley Milgram, is because it talks about obedience to authority and why that is, is important. Is this the one where uh, one person is asked to electrocute another when they see yeah. the wrong answer? Oh, yes, yes. So, so nerve-wracking to learn about. <laughs> you, you, you can't possibly get ethical clearance for those things anymore because you're yeah, inflicting psychological God. damage. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so there is psychological damage associated with it. But the justification in their head was they're stupid. I mean, they're so stupid that they can't get the basic right. You know, I must. They deserve this. They, they, 
and they knew that some of those voltage shocks might actually kill them. And of course, the, on the other side, that was an actor. But there was this yeah. guy with a white coat pushing the, uh, the, the subject, I would say, or the participant to give more and more shocks or increase the voltage of the shocks. And this is where obedience to authority comes. In the group dynamic, whatever, who is, whoever's the leader or whoever's kind of driving the whole thing. I mean, look at this way. Hitler did not do all those executions, right? The people underneath, lots of people who orchestrated, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the real guy, the real perpetrator who designed it. He was the one who said, let's do the final solution. And he was the one who designed Auschwitz and the, all these camps where they could be gassed wow. and got these tunnels dug and put the people in the tunnels and fired them at once. So these guys, so for them, it was numbers. They didn't think, they didn't see any of that. For them, it was paperwork. And they're making decisions and seeing things on numbers. So they're not seeing any of the stuff that's actually happening on the field. And mm. people who are on the field, they are the ones doing it. But for them, it's obedience to the authority. And in, in, in Stanley Milgram's experiment, if you're wearing a lab coat and the, the guy in the lab coat, who was also the actor, kept saying, you must go on. And even if people were like, no, I can't give any more shocks. They're like, no, but you must continue. So the, the Milgram wanted to test how hard it is for people to break that authority and say, no, I am done. I want to leave. Not many. And especially when there are consequences in disobedience to the authority. Not many will do that, right? And of, and of course, there is this pleasure of being the richest one, being the more nationalistic, being the one doing what's good for the country, right? And, and that guy who designed the final solution, he was exactly, he kept saying, I did what was great for the country and nothing else because he was later caught from, I think it was Buenos Aires in Argentina because he ran away. Um, uh, and then, I know exactly who you're talking about. I will look yeah, this up. The name of that guy who was the, de the, the designer of Final Solution, he, his name was Eichmann. And Eichmann's yes. first name was Adolf, same as Hitler's. And um, when he went, and this is the reason I don't remember him, when he went to Argentina, um, he changed his name and he's living under a pseudonym. Uh. that's the history his name was Eichmann uh, so so this this guy so he was like all he was doing is for the better of the country and nothing else mm -hmm. and for him it was just numbers but Hitler didn't do it himself this guy didn't do it himself the people on the street so so the, so Milgram's study is really really important even though it can't be done again people who are under the influence of authority I mean the classic example is um Adam and Eve story of you know I'm, I'm going to digress a little bit there and you know yeah. you would say that oh why did eve ate the apple you know why why couldn't everybody just stay in um, uh, paradise forever so <laughs> you, you can easily say oh the snake satan in the, in the snake asked me to do that and mm -hmm. that obedience to authority that's why i did it so you can just or you know the jihadis go and blow people up Allah asked me to do it because they believe, even though Allah never came and asked them specifically to do something like that, the interpretation of what God said to them is this. And then they can say, it's not on me because somebody who is higher up clearly can save me from this guilt or punishment of the crime. 
actually wanted me to do that. I'm just doing their work. So taking away the guilt and being obedient to the authority can make you the worst type of perpetrator. And this is what Stanley Milgram showed. Stanford Prison on the other side was, you know, showing this group dynamics where you could essentially make a hellhole if you keep people mm-hmm. in 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 this kind of prison state for a long period of time. So so these these are very relevant experiments even now, despite that they were done in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of criticism, of course, to both of them, and and they inflicted a lot of trauma to people. As a scientist, I feel like I'm glad that these things were done because we understand more about people now. Uh, mm-hmm. And now I, I can do experiments like the one that I am doing because I know the background of the human behavior from these experiments. And because they were studied in a scientific way, you know, I can uh, interpret results and infer from those findings. But people would also say that I wish they were not done because of, of what people went through uh, due to those experiments. Um, but yes. even now we, we go through a lot of uh, all of this kind of behavior by actual prison guards and, you know, who, people who are actually authoritative. Uh, in many countries, so so it it is heartbreaking. It still goes on. Yeah, yeah so, and the yeah. scariest thing about it, as far as I'm concerned, from my perspective, is that most of us, if not all, including me and you, have a human tendency that we would still behave like that under those circumstances if the conditions were right. Like maybe, Absolutely. maybe now that we understand the phenomenon from a scientific perspective and if we were put in that and we're like okay we can connect the dots and maybe we wouldn't but then we can't be sure like we don't know how our biases and everything can be you know can be molded can be sharpened can be directed in a particular perspective and we could be just as evil well evil if if that is even a thing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just that we have that potential for doing these horrific things all of us and we have to be extra careful that we don't succumb to them like yeah. in across india for the last several years the kind of violence that we have seen the communal violence that we've seen which has been sparked on multiple occasions there were the northeast delhi riots which were just which just happened this year where you see it's it's horrific to see it and it I mean, just India makes has a long you wonder of violence. It's not just, exactly. just you know, India existed before 2014. So, so there's a long history of violence there uh, before exactly. that. Exactly. And when you were talking about the Nazis, that kind of reminded me of this in a way. It feels that, <laughs> that there is, they feel justified. <laughs> they feel that this is something that they want to do for the country, that they feel that yeah. they are being supported by, <laughs> by the powers that be. Which is they don't just feel they are supported because they're they're streaming lynchings live in front of the camera because they think that they have the impunity to get away with it. And the guy, I think one of the students in Delhi uh, was attempted to get shot at. Uh, and the, mm. those two guys from Haryana, I, I can't remember the names, but um, but they were running with the gun because the gun did not work accidentally. Fortunately for the guy who was trying, who was you know being shot at. Um, so and then they ran away, but they they live stream they they took a photo of themselves and posted it on the Facebook page. I mean, nobody would do that because for them it's like they're going to get caught. But this these people were like they know they're going to be enough support, and they were right. Some of them uh, involved in the lynchings have given political uh, spaces and careers and have actually been rewarded. 
So who knows? <laughs> so it's when you give people reward, yeah, when you give people reward, and even today I think there was a murder, uh, and there's an immense amount of celebration when extrajudicial killings happen. And I remember like when I went to the U.S., I gave a talk at uh, USIP, the United States Institute of Peace and the State Department, and there was one distinction that the, the Americans kept making is that the non-state actors of violence uh, versus the state actors because uh, you know military is supposed to be a lot more disciplined and what we are seeing here is absolute impunity of people who support uh, the establishment who are not a part of military not a part of any official office and then they're still just by the support of the government um, they're still the way they are the first time i saw the type of horrendous violence around me was 2002 in Gujarat. And then, you know, we moved out of India. And when I saw that, I, be, I, I did not believe that only religion could be a matter of dividing people. Because mm -hmm. the reason we are alive is, is because of the people of the other religion that, who were the others at that time. They are the ones who saved us. And religion is not the factor here. This is something else. And yeah. then I eventually wanted to figure out why people do what they do. I mean, of course, in other uh, other cases of you know riots, people have turned against their own neighbors. In in our case, our neighbors were like our family, um, and and they would I can't think of them you know being like that. They they were better than our relatives. But people can turn against their neighbors, and and if if things go really bad and and you got to realize that this this couldn't be religion. Like, you know, this is not what we've been taught um, growing up in specific religion. Every religion that, you know, before you become a skeptic, you kind of understand a lot of religion and try to connect like mm. many dots together. And and we know other religions. Yeah, they're, they're unless, you know. I want to I want to get back into a slightly more hopeful mood after like this is this is pretty heavy. But yeah, you're, you're talking about how you are rehabilitating extremists. How do you go about doing that? How do you get people to turn around from an ideology like that? Yeah, so I, I'm not doing rehabilitation work right now. I'm speaking with a lot of people who've already been rehabilitated or people who are yet to be rehabilitated. The foundation of you know a, a de-radicalization program uh, that would eventually, using the science that I have studied and other people's science, because science is not like you know, a singular thing that I've done this and I'll do this and that. It's always built on people's work, right? My mm. contribution here is that I found a way to evoke these appetitive, aggressive, driving people who are extremely normal, completely healthy psychiatrically, and yet engage in violence in the lab in a controlled way without an extremist ideology. I mean, look at Stanley Milgram, look at Stanford Prison Experiment. None of these guys had ideology. So it is already, it's, it's like an evolutionary drive already in our, um, in humans that makes you do what you do. Ideology is just, uh, it's a horse ride. Yeah, let me justify this with religion or ideology. I mean, there are specific groups in US and in, in um, Canada. I'm not sure if you'd heard about this murder uh, that this guy called Alex Minassian did. Uh, and um, uh, he follows this thing called incel ideology. It's just about oh, God. celibacy. Oh. 
So oh, by God. this is not by choice. It's involuntary <laughs> celibacy. Celibacy. Yeah, yeah. These these guys and the, the majority of them are they're they're not happy with women, but they don't have a religious, political, or power ideology. What I'm trying to say is that not everybody's violent, even in that group. There are sections of that group who have conducted some violent acts, and it's considered as terrorism because they have terrorized people. And then there are sections of radicals and extremists everywhere across the world. It's, for example, the neo-Nazis, not everybody is the violent kind. So the, the bottom line here is that not everybody is going to be violent in every extremist movement. I mean, if you look at ISIS, there are computer coders, there are drivers, there are accountants who go to the caliphate, as they call it. And uh, not everybody engages in those horrific videos that we see the ISIS-style executions. Mm-hmm. Even as, as Nazis, you're, you're a Nazi. You believe that these guys should be killed, who's a Jew or a Black or whatever, Asian. But not everybody's the murderer there. And without these violent actors, those other guys who are the actual extremists, not, not, the, not the terrorists, the extremists or the radicals, they are nothing. So the radicals on its own can't function without these violent actors. And my research is only focused on these violent actors, that if we do something about these guys, you can have all sorts of extremist ideology. You can have no, no ideology and you can still like, you know, try to do some saving. Um, and that's why Stanford and, and Milgram was important because no ideology again. So it's in ourselves. It's an evolutionary drive that comes out. You know, we, we feel like we want to be, um, violent and enjoy that and it's better than any drug you've ever taken it's the best drug and once you've done it it's like addiction you want to keep getting that high because there's no better high than that and that's why they get they know it's bad for them but they get sucked into it so bad and then there's politics and all you know criminal charges and all that around they know they're going to get caught and it's not going to be funny or fancy um but at the same time they, they can't leave so easily. So it's really hard for them to leave. And it is wow. like addiction. The interesting part of this is, mm-hmm. now I'm talking about the science here, right? Because this is the core of this idea, right? Science is the core idea here. We're talking about all these phenomena, but unless we've got a science to back it up, there is, there is it's hollow, right? Mm-hmm. So what I've been doing in the lab is humans is actually coming from preclinical models, animal models of this type of appetitive drives of aggression. And mm-hmm. I mean, there are people who worked in the monkeys for like 30 years, in other primates, in mice and all that. But my, one of my collaborators in Seattle in, uh, in the US, he's got a mice model of this appetitive drive of aggression. And these mice um, attack the mice just for fun and the way we figure that out is there is this dopaminergic drive in the specific areas of the brain that we can measure afterwards. Uh, in a molecular way, so all these dopamine receptors are being activated, and we measure that, and we're seeing exactly where the, you know, what system lights up. And guess what? That system that lights up, and we, I also make the comparison between this appetitive violence, this dopamine-driven violence, versus the retaliatory violence, which is this defensive Mm-hmm. The mechanism is so different. I mean, you would think that, oh, violence is violence, right? No matter what you do. So in your brain, you'll still process it the same way. No. One is a drug. The other works is self-defense. 
huge differences. And mm. that's how I know this, this is different. But in those mice models, the circuitry for this dopamine-driven rewarding violence is so powerful and exactly overlaps the addiction circuitry. So if you've been hooked on methamphetamine, alcohol, any addiction-like substance, opioids, it's a, a bigger high, but it's the same circuitry in action. You know it's bad for you, but you're still going to take it. And you take it again and again, and, and you get someone addicted. And mm -hmm. if you want to get them to stop consuming that substance or substance abuse, what do you do? You put them in a rehab or something, right? You try to get them to stop doing it for a little mm -hmm. while. But we know from addiction research, the majority of the people who walk out of rehab because rehab is not that successful because they don't understand how to do it really well. Most of those guys actually go back and relapse into addiction. And if you look at prison populations, if you commit a murder of this appetitive type in particular or engage in physical violence, you go into prison, there is some abstinence of violence, as I can call that, because in prisons, you can't really commit a murder in prisons, right? And then majority of the people who come out of prisons, the relapse rate are shooting. And, and this is American prisons I'm talking about. So even in the behavior, it follows the same addiction pattern. And if you know how to get people out, the good thing about this is if you can get them addicted, you can take them out. It's just that we haven't figured out how to do it. But if we understand the mechanism of it through science, and if we treat this type of terrorist-like aggression like addiction, we can also take it out. Because now we understand this is the mechanism. And what people were doing, they were using religion and psychology. That's not enough to de-radicalize them because ideology is not the problem here. It's their mm -hmm. drive of being violent. They can be yeah. home and think that, oh, I'm going to kill some Muslim Jew, blah, 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 and I'll be okay. But they can't do anything about it, right? Mm -hmm. They have to have the resources and the drive to kill someone or be a jihadi or, you know, be a shooter in a mosque or somebody. So you need to have the drive. And if we, if we kill that drive, we succeeded. And this is where we need this type of science to, to get them out of what they're trying to do. That is incredibly fascinating. And I, I hope you make some serious headway and like the sooner the better because we need help. Human Absolutely. beings can suck. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I can do like we all... We all have the potential to suck. We don't all suck. I'm just uh, yeah. Oh, actually, yeah. Out of the mice that I was talking about, uh, there mm -hmm. was a subset of population who engaged in, uh, in this type of aggression. And even in humans, there was a subset of population. So not everybody was being aggressive in my lab as well. But there mm -hmm. was a large number of people who were aggressive. So this is a natural thing to do. Be, a, be aggressive in an appetitive way. But... If you don't want to be aggressive, if you don't, if you want to inhibit the drive, it takes more work. You know how, mm -hmm. I'm not going to compare it because it's not the same thing, but it is kind of similar. You know how to be racist or to be homophobic? You don't need a lot of work, right? To mm -hmm. not be racist and to not be homophobic, you need to learn. You need to be empathetic. Your brain needs to work harder to understand empathy and circumstance and you know all of those things and then you'll be like ah this is wrong 
what I'm doing is wrong. That hard work is important before you can become a good person. So you're not born good, right? Yeah. You, you learn to be good. And people are not born good or bad, right? They learn to become good. So this is, this, I think it's not a good example, but it's kind of similar. They have to learn and suppress their drive very mm-hmm. hard. And I think that uh, I think that the, there's a very good analogy with that uh, when it comes to uh, pretty much anything we believe in, any narrative that we have, a preconceived notion, a belief system, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. or any bias that we have towards pretty much anything. Like um, I had written recently uh, in one of my more recent episodes, uh, talking about the five steps that I took towards becoming a skeptic. <laughs> And they were extremely hard because the primary step, the primary thing that you have to keep doing to yourself is to question your own beliefs. Absolutely. So one of the first things that happened was I had a a conversation with a friend of mine who was a creationist. And I had just taken it for granted that evolution was true. (laughs) (laughs) Set up a date. I I would love to have a chat with them. Coffee or something. But the conversation that happened and made me realize that I could be wrong about something, that this is something that I've, this is something I've taken for granted my whole life. And I could be wrong about it. And I think that was the first time, that was my first step towards becoming a skeptic, because even if my preconceived notion was supported by the science, was supported by evidence, at the same time, I had to go through, I mean, short of reading the origin of species by Charles Darwin. <laughs> Next to that, I had to pretty much go through as much material as I had access to, to understand where the science was and what were the bits that I didn't understand. But right. at the first time when I was sitting there with him, I didn't want to admit it, but I was like, could I be wrong? And that is, so whenever <laughs> you have weak like- moments? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's, and uh, this, it's happened several times over the last decade. So- so if you believe yes. that another group is less than human, that, that another group is not worthy of compassion or equality or anything or on any plane, if you think that, then you should just sit down and try and question that belief system. If or just try belief, to be in their shoes. I think that's exactly. all you need. Because the races are like, oh, no, I'm not a racist. But they still go, oh, you know, all these racist things. And you, there's a lot of people who have gone ask white people, oh, do you think there's racism here? They're like, no, I never felt that way. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course you haven't. Because you were the white person. And unless you actually don't see it through yourself or don't put yourself in those shoes, you never even know that it exists. It's the exactly. same with homophobia. It's the same with other things. And social media just makes that bubble even more closed off. There, we got through that all right, didn't we? What do you think of the things that we spoke about? Do you have any questions for Dr. Sheikh that we can ask the next time she's on the show? Let me know. Next time, we'll be diving into her role as the founder and head of Alt News Science, Patanjali and Pseudoscience in India. So I'll see you then. Thank you so much for listening to The Rationable Podcast. If you like this show, please subscribe, share it, rate it, and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It'll make it much easier for others to find it. For the show notes, transcript, references, and more, visit www.berationable.com. Continue the conversation on the Rationable Conversations Facebook group 
and at BeRationable on Twitter. For feedback, questions or suggestions, write to abhijit at BeRationable.com. That's A-B-H-I-G-I-T at BeRationable.com. Until next time, 